Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Achieving Christian Thought podcast. I'm your host, Brian. Hey, thanks for listening in. This is Robert. Hey, I'm Zach. Join us for each episode as we apply the gospel to dive into the inner workings of the Christian faith. Are you agnostic or atheist and want to understand Christianity better? Want to learn more about Jesus? Discuss the differences between the modern and early churches? or maybe explore some of the Bible's most interesting characters, then we hope you'll join us in Achieving Christian Thought. So hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Good show, I think, in store for us today. We've got the... Council of Leonidas, I believe. No, that's uh, that's, yeah, a joke. Yeah, Uh, Nicaea. (laughs) Knew something like that. No, Um, (laughs) but uh, yeah, um, no. Welcome everybody. Great show. We've got Robert, Zach here, um, as always. Um, uh, Definitely, if you guys want to interact with us um, as you're listening, definitely check out our Facebook page, um, uh, the Achieving Christian Thought podcast, and visit our website, the Act pod.com and so yeah welcome zach welcome robert hey what's up all right robert you take it away sir all right taking it away so one of the most important aspects of church history for anybody to get their grasp on would be the councils of the church and those tend to be misunderstood that's why we want to talk about these because as you look through the history of the church a lot of people get the idea that the church decided what would be ideal what would be um, right doctrine and so it is the church putting their stamp of approval on those ideas and teachings and books that would give them power and actually that's what books like the da vinci code uh, caused a stir in pop culture for is the idea that um, constantine the emperor that i think i believe we've talked about him on the show before constantine the first official christian emperor of the roman empire established the canon of the scriptures and he established what would be orthodoxy and they put his seal on it because he was the emperor and you don't say no to the emperor and it's not true it's not the christian understanding of how that came to be at all like zero in any way period (laughs) at all (laughs) but uh so what we want to talk about is now there are an ocean of councils throughout history but uh quickly a council in general, and then we're going to zoom in on one particular council for this show. But the idea of a Christian council was literally just um, a group of Christians who confessed the Orthodox faith were coming together because of a controversy to decide not what they would consider the most convenient truth or what they would put their stamp on. What they were trying to do was they were trying to decide what they believed God had already stamped with approval beforehand. And that's a huge, it's a subtle difference, but it's a huge one because you're not trying to establish what is true. You're trying to find what's already there. Right. It's kind of like they looked at what the, the, the gospels, they looked at what the epistles the uh, from Paul and John and Peter and all those apostles that were directly influenced by Jesus and was like, what, what does the text say? Um, and what, you know, what can we how can we articulate our beliefs that correspond to the scriptures Mm -hmm. exactly and one misperception about um this council in particular we're going to be talking about it's well it's been mentioned already the council of nicaea there's no grand significance to the name it's just the location where they met in europe in order to discuss the controversies that they were having erupt around them in about 325 A.D. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's C.E. for those who follow a more modern timeline. But this is literally three centuries after Jesus' life. He's dead. The church claims he rose again, and it erupts. And now three centuries later, we have a little bit of controversy. Um, One thing that is worth noting before we get into the meat and potatoes of it, because what it was really about was the identity of Christ. But one thing that is worth noting from the beginning before we get into the identity is the the canon of Scripture was already established by the church. Uh, what they wanted to do was they wanted to take this opportunity while they were together and basically uh, you know, make it official that, yes, we agree that these 66 books from Genesis to the Revelation of John 
or canon. And it was already pretty much established throughout the churches because they understood who had written them and why they had so much authority. They just wanted to make it official going forward for the just simply for the fact sake of organization. Right. And I would even go so far as to say that, you know, this is the first time where Christianity was being placed as a state religion, okay? And so with Constantine being the head of the state, so to speak, as the emperor, he is then kind of like affirming that these traditions have been passed down. This is what we're going to consider to be... um, you know what the scripture teaches, etc., so forth, um, and it's a, it's important to realize that these teachings, like what Robert was saying, already existed, but for the sake of the um, quote unquote now official Roman religion, it had it now has to have a stamp of you know the the Trinity. It now has to have a stamp on. Uh, the 66 books of the Bible because if it didn't, then there would be opportunities for, you know, other um, works to be, you know, seen as valid, whereas traditional Christianity was like, you know, these books are clearly not from the apostles, like such as the Gnostic Gospels and stuff like that. And so it was like, it was another way of saying, hey, look, no, it's not these it is the historically speaking the 66 books that we that the church has always um, supported and uh, seen as canon. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and so in what you start to see in the new era of uh, Christian history, as we go from the the persecuted phase into the phase where Christianity is legal, all of a sudden now you see these controversies based off of the text coming to light and it's not as if they're not that important and all of a sudden people got bored they didn't know what to do so they decided to debate the philosophy of Jesus for years and years and years and years but now what really happened was these things have always been important now one thing that Christians have always been guilty of is we tend to let these disagreements as long as it's not the core gospel itself we allow these secondary disagreements about certain things to erupt into conflict that shouldn't happen. But it's always important, as long as you can avoid that unnecessary selfish conflict, um, then as long as you can avoid that, it's always very helpful and healthy to discuss and think through the different details of the faith. And so what was going on was the church got into a phase where they, they always thought it was important. Paul himself would have said the identity of Jesus, which was the main topic of Nicaea, is important but they were so focused on just staying alive staying hidden long enough to keep spreading the message they couldn't just chill like we're like we're relaxing on this microphone to talk about this stuff like they do at this era and so it was always important it's just now they have a whole new blessing they can just come out in the open and say I am a follower of Christ we have some resources to get to the point of what Jesus of who Jesus is and what Jesus did and so First, um, let's get into the controversy surrounding Nicaea. Um, uh, To be honest, and I told Zach this the other day while we were planning out this episode, this is one of those stories in Christian history that could be turned, if it was done well, please don't make it cheesy, but (laughs) it it could. I don't know, we're pretty good at making movies cheesy. Oh yeah, Parmesan the movie, but uh, from the makers of Courageous. But, but, uh, sorry, I couldn't resist. But if it could be done well, you could turn this whole episode into a movie. This thing uh, is Not us. He's talking about this. What's coming? Oh yeah, I know we could not do it well. (laughs) Three, Three men with a green screen can't do it justice. But just the story itself is so full of real drama. I mean, if anyone out there thinks that your philosophy or your ideas don't impact your world, um, it, all you need to do is look at this story in particular to see how those things can take effect and grip the church. Um, even if you're not a believer, just grip the world around you in ways you'd never imagined because what you think helps you to filter how you interpret your world, how you interpret your reality, and how you interpret your reality defines how you live within it. 
um, a maniac who thinks that this is just the Matrix and he has to kill himself to wake up and jumps off a building. There have been actual stories of people escaping from insane asylums who do this very thing and they are objectively deceased because they've chosen to do this. And so your ideas definitely matter, always. And so what happened was a very dangerous idea erupted. And if Zach wants to jump on before I fly through the whole story, that's fine. So what really happened was this bishop, a very early bishop, uh, the church was just now getting used to the idea that things were legal. But a bishop in Egypt was actually starting to teach that Jesus was less than God. Now, there are some uh, subgroups uh, that branch from Christianity that still teach this in different ways, but what he was teaching was much more than just an opinion. And uh, for those of you out there who might think we're nitpicking ideas, what was so threatening about the idea of Jesus being less than God, um, the Gospel of John in the New Testament, if you take your time to read it well and interpret it well, he makes it quite obvious that that's who he believed Jesus was. But if you take it as less than God, then based on the very core of the Christian faith, it's based on the idea that Jesus died on a cross, he rose again. Your very salvation, the, the hope you have for eternity, is based on the death of this one man. So if he was anything less than God, it literally threatened salvation itself. And without salvation, what was the point of being a believer? Salvation is the very air you breathe when you're a believer. Everything else just comes as icing on the cake after this. And the reason was... The idea that Scripture presents is that this world was created by a perfect God, fell into imperfection. Uh, stuff we've covered before, but I'm f specifically slanting towards you know, God's relationship with us. This was a perfect God demanding perfect payment. And this one sacrifice was supposed to be eternal for every person who would ever live, past, present, and future. Anything less than God would have been a finite, limited sacrifice because only God alone is unlimited only God alone is eternal and so if Jesus was less than if there was a moment when Jesus did not exist and the father created him that's what this guy actually taught um, there's a there's an old archaic phrase a mantra of his there was a time when he was not it just means once upon a time Jesus did not exist and then pop Jesus existed because the father actually created him he was somewhere between the angels and the Father himself, but he was not God. And, a, and a, one of our modern-day um, cults slash sects, sect, make sure I emphasize that syllable there to the end, because otherwise it can get kind of confusing. Um, but this sect is uh, called uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. That is a group to this day, um, I believe they got founded, they were founded in America in the 1800s, and they have adopted this view that Jesus was, the for, uh, was formerly, before he was Jesus, he was the Archangel Michael, and he was a created being by God the Father. So here you see in modern day times, that is the equivalent of this group that kind of like basically just picked up this old heresy and dusted it off and revamped it into what we have today with Jehovah's Witnesses. Oh, yeah, which goes to show you that just because it's an ancient story doesn't mean it's right there in your backyard. And so uh, when people have this idea, uh, as Zach mentioned, the Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, the, the, the teaching of this day that I'm talking about in the 300s, uh, this bishop's name was Arius, which branched Arianism, which was the teaching of Jesus being less than God. Uh, you know, when a believer does that, um, it's a very important to confront the heresy without showing animosity towards the individuals who believe it because it's not like our camp is better, we're trying to bash the other camp, but this idea is can be genuinely harmful to the gospel itself. Yes, because literally, I mean, if Jesus was the Archangel Michael, we there's a lot of problems in Christianity, and uh, Scripture particularly, how you interpret that. I mean... There, you would have to slice and dice a whole lot of scripture, a whole lot of text to get that ideology. And if that's true, you know, if 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 what these people propose was you know true, that's one thing. But these things are not like you would have to actually corrupt text to get it to say what Jehovah's Witnesses are, are postulating. Um, and I'm not again, I'm not trying to like down them as an individual group i'm just like attacking the idea 
like like for scripture we hope we adhere to the bible we adhere to what does the text actually say we have people who give their entire lives to studying greek and and hebrew to make sure that these things are translated properly and they go back to the original earliest manuscripts that we can get our hands on and they're still discovering manuscripts even to this day um I, i'm trying to think of one off the top of my head but it's irrelevant at the moment but so you have a group of people who have a a, a a desire to corrupt the text to get it to say what they want it to say versus allowing the text to speak for itself and for your doctrine and theology to come from the text itself. There's two different things there. And one is following, you know, the gospel and so etc. And then the other this other group is literally corrupting that. And that's why Christians are like so quick to say, whoa, you're, you're getting into a realm that you shouldn't be in because you're taking the text and you're changing it. Exactly. And so you have these people uh, starting to be swayed towards Arius's position. They're thinking, okay, uh, if there was a time when Jesus was not, um, then this, you know, this idea filters down into every aspect of Christian life. And, of course, those who had already come to the Orthodox belief, now the Orthodox Christian belief from the beginning, since the days of Paul, who visibly claimed to have seen Jesus in person, uh, they believe fully that he is God. He was uh, the the king incarnate, uh, you know, grace and truth, for it came through Jesus. No one has seen the Father. Jesus made him known. We have beheld his glory. Paul added to John what he said and said, you know, the very fullness of God is inside of Jesus. And this is ancient first century stuff before you get into the third and fourth century stuff. So jump ahead to the third and fourth century. You've got Arya's teaching this, and they decided it's time to come together. Um, if, if there are any Lord of the Rings uh, fans out there, this was Elrond in Rivendell. It's like, it's time to come together. It's time to start that epic uh, soundtrack, walk across an open field. We'll meet in a circle. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. And we're going to decide what to do with the ring. But... Uh, <laughs> And so what they did was they discussed the identity of Christ, and this got so heated. Um, if you've ever seen uh, senators, um, regardless of what side of politics you're on, both sides, all three sides, if a third party jumps in, they're yelling at each other, they're throwing things down. This actually started to happen over the identity of Christ at Nicaea. They met in the town of Nicaea, and uh, Constantine showed up, the emperor himself, so that he could regulate these things. And they could all get to the get to the bottom of what this church really believed and so you have Arius and his small camp teaching what they taught that we've already gone over and then of course there was the majority of theologians and bishops who had held to what Paul had said that Jesus was divine he was divinity himself so there are two players on the other end the uh, orthodox end that really come into strong play here and um, the first one I'll mention he, he, he's kind of brief here, but um, I promised Brian I would bring this up. But Santa Claus himself, I'm not joking, the historical Santa, jolly old Saint Nicholas, he was a Catholic bishop in the day. And he uh, he watched over a, a church in Turkey, I believe. And what he did was he was on the, the Orthodox side. He knew who Jesus was. And according to church uh, records, I think it's in the church minutes, and there are even paintings and mosaics of this crazy event. But Arius got up to speak. Nicholas was sitting nearby, and he felt like Arius, even with good intentions, was blaspheming Christ. And he was literally afraid that judgment would come down. It was kind of that little old church lady, ooh, lightning bolt is going to strike us, because <laughs> their, their grandson told a fib. And so he, he starts to uh, get angry that this man is uh, blaspheming the identity of Jesus, to the point where St. Nicholas, who is, I mean, pop culture considers him the, the ultimate Mr. Nice Man, Mr. Jolly, but he jumped up and slapped the heck out of Arius. Um, you can Google image uh, St. Nicholas slapping Arius. Um, <laughs> I was wondering if we would say that. It was right there. It was right there. I should have thought it. I can't believe I didn't think of that. Keep, keep my God's name out your mouth. But... <laughs> <laughs> That's great. 
<laughs> oh, that's amazing. Oh, the, the, the Nicene Oscars. <laughs> and so um, if anybody out there is feeling snarky, just go ahead and make a meme where you compare an old mosaic to the actual footage of Will Smith <laughs> side by side. But uh, And so Santa Claus popped Arius across the face over this controversy. Uh, so on top of St. Nicholas, there's another player. With a, his name is a mouthful, but he is definitely one of the great heroes of the ancient church, uh, St. Athanasius. Say that five times fast. No, no I really don't. No. I started to. I was like, nah, let's not, let's not give them <laughs> stuff to edit out. But Athanasius, as in like at the city of Athens, Athanasius. And so he was the great, cha- even above and beyond St. Nicholas, he became the face of this controversy against Arius's teachings. Um, if you ever Google him, you'll find some good writings by him. He wrote one of the very first theological books on the Incarnation, ironically directly applying to Jesus' identity. Uh, I think it's literally, literally called On the Incarnation, so it can't be hard to, re- hard to forget. But he was so on fire about this idea because he was so convinced that the gospel itself was at stake in what Arius was saying. He said, I can't just consider this, you know, two things. We have an opinion. We can walk away. He said, the gospel that we preach that the church was founded upon is reflected in this. And so um, we can get into the theology of Nicaea and what they concluded um, in a moment. But to finish the history behind this, according to more records, (laughs) church tradition, um, Athanasius actually uh, went into a public spot and there are witnesses who said that he prayed out loud and he said, Father, King, uh, King of all, uh, King of the world, um, Father of Jesus Christ, you know who your son was, who you sent into this world to die. And if there's any chance that Arius's teaching is false, if you who know everything know who my son is and he is teaching a falsehood, I ask that you kill him so that the world can see this and know that he was teaching a falsehood because preserving it is that important. Now, we're not here to discuss whether he was right or wrong to pray that, but that's those are the events as they happened. And he said, if I am wrong, if I'm mistaken, if I've jumped the gun, if I've misinterpreted Scripture, and I am worshiping someone who doesn't need it to be worshipped, like God alone is worshipped, then kill me. And whoever one of us dies, we'll consider that to have been the great winner so that your truth prevails and future generations can know the truth. And so what was happening was Arius was actually teaching in the street. Um, he would go around, he would wrap some people around him, and he, as they were circling him, he would be preaching some of his ideas uh, against Athanasius at this point. He would call him out by name, that Athanasius is talking about me. Uh, he doesn't know anything. Jesus is not God. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. Arius is preaching in the street against Athanasius. And again, this is uh, Arius... The, the heretic, the Jesus is less than God guy. And he's preaching against the man who was holding on to the idea that Jesus is God. So he's preaching against Athanasius. And all of a sudden, he gets a little woozy and he falls over and he is dead in the street and blood is pooling out of his body as he lays there. So he died mid-sermon. This is history. This is, this is searchable. This is searchable history. He died mid-sermon. Scholars that... Um, have touched medical science. They've read some of the symptoms, and they believe, just based on the descriptions of the texts of that day, they believe that he may have had an undiagnosed bowel cancer that had been spreading. And so he literally died mid-sermon. And so the church saw this. They had witnesses to the fact that Athanasius had prayed publicly for this. They thought, okay, there's no way that this was not some kind of sign from above that the, the, this is the truth. Jesus is God. And so they, what they did was the church, uh, when they were gathered, they, they hammered out the Nicene Creed. It's just the, the reflection of the town. They met in Nicaea, and they wrote the Nicene Creed, which laid out for the church once and for all in writing who they believed Jesus to truly be. And you can Google that creed and read it word for word today. But that's the history behind how that council came. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Robert. That is phenomenal. And and that's why I said Robert, you're going first because you know he. I mean, I I love to read. I'm I love to 
to research stuff, but Robert Robert's the master here. So let me just ask though, Arius is that that was right? Arius. Yeah. Was he teaching that out of malice or? Was he just misguided? Because I mean, the scriptures are pretty clear, mm-hmm. like they're yeah. cut and dry. So, did he just, just, he just had some wacky interpretation? And it wasn't out of malice to try to destroy, or like, what was his? So, if I understand it correctly, I believe Arius started to teach this in the beginning, in the early days, when he first had that little eureka moment. I think he was teaching it out of a desire, and it was a sincere desire um, not to overstep his bounds with God. Because I think there was a fear in Arius that if this man was anything less than God, and I spend my life saying that he is on par with the one true God, the Father, then it's possible that I am blaspheming the Father by elevating the Son too much. And I think that fear got to him to the point where he was ignoring or intentionally misinterpreting those parts that did make it clear that Jesus is God. And as he saw more and more resistance, which he should have seen coming, but as he got more and more resistance, it turned less from a focus on God towards more and more himself. Then towards the end, when he was preaching against Athanasius, he was just ranting and raving against this man who dared go against him. It was just a knock to his pride. I think he was publicly embarrassed to be counted as one of the heresies of history. He did not want to. He did not want to do that. And I would even go so far as to say it's very possible Arius was genuinely saved, but genuinely misguided, because he could have had genuine faith in Jesus, misunderstood who he was, went to heaven, and then got corrected by Jesus himself. And that's how I'd love to see it happen. But uh, I think towards the end, it slowly shifted towards himself. He was more focused on his reputation, trying to def- protect himself. Kind of like when a megachurch pastor gets into hot water for something they said, and then they spend the next decade of their careers trying to, trying so hard to explain exactly whether they were whether they were correct in what they said or what they they spend a decade trying to fix their view in certain Christians' eyes and. It can be a little consuming when when you're you feel like the public is turned against you, whether that's you know genuine or perception or not. But yeah, Arius kind of went through a a little season of the soul that got darker and darker towards the end of his life. Yeah, yeah. So um, I couldn't have said it better, which is why Robert said it. Which is you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> You are the 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 grand master. Literally, you have a master's degree, so that's why I kind of I'm like I know some stuff and I like to talk about it. But Robert here's master here, so we're gonna let him talk a lot. So I'm gonna sit back on the sideline and go, Yo, Robert, go, Robert, go, go, Robert. <laughs> so, do you think these modern day uh, kind of offshoots that are still around today that kind of teach that? <laughs> Do you think that's kind of motivation of where it's coming from? Of they they don't want anything to be on par with God, so that's why they kind of lower. You know, or is it just? You know, I I with Jehovah's Witnesses, and I'm just gonna pick on them a little bit um, because they're you know they were a group that was founded in the United States in the middle of the 1800s. And they first started off as being like this, and and of course they'll they've distanced themselves from this teaching. And and I'm trying to remember the name of the gentleman who started the group. Was it Russell? Was it Russell Taze? Or am I thinking of? That's what I want to say. Okay, but um, he basically started off as being like a doom, like I'm I've done the calculations and I know in the year 1900 Jesus is going to return. Or yeah, one of, one of those cats, and uh, so 1900 rolls around, and there's no, there's no Exodus, there's no calling up and into heaven. And he's like, oh, oh, let me go back, let me go back and recalculate. Oh, I forgot to carry. The I, f- two. I forgot to carry the two and minus the five. <laughs> Dang it! Apple it's pie, actually not circumferal pie. 1915, and I think he did this a nu- numerous times, and I think. The last time that they made a claim that the rapture was going to happen was in the 1970s, like 1975-ish. Uh, 
and they actually rented out a huge um, uh, auditorium, like uh, like a um, it wasn't an auditorium, but you know, uh, stadium. That's the word I was thinking of. They rented out a huge stadium and were waiting and waiting and waiting, and then they waited some more, and and they continued waiting, um, and then nothing happened. And so, I mean, I, I know that's kind of like where they started, but then they started, like, creating the Watchtower. Now, I think this is even before that, the Watchtower liter- literature. And that promoted their views, promoted their uh, ideas. And that's one thing that still to this day, if you ever get visited by them, um, they're quick to, as long as you have the King James Version, they're quick to cite the King James Scripture and give you some of their Watchtower Society material, which is just a lot of outdated information. Like if you actually do the, like the research and the footnotes and a lot of the 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 history and the stuff that they say with the Greek is inaccurate and not correct. And and that's the thing about this group is they they're very closed. In other words. They don't like you reading information about them outside of what the organization has to say about itself. And that's where it kind of gets into that dangerous territory where whenever you don't allow things or people of a different opinion, you know, talking about the group of Christians, whenever a Christian group doesn't allow themselves to be checked, that's whenever you, you, you there's a problem there. Because really, the checks and balances should be the Holy Scripture, and if you're misinterpreting the Scripture, if you're messing it up, then you're then the organization becomes the Scripture, the organization that, and the leadership becomes the kind of like the guide. And I think, and I, and honestly, in, in my opinion, I think it's demonic. I think whether or not I'm not saying Arius was or wasn't a believer, I'm not going to make that claim or was whether he was or wasn't saved. But what I can say is that idea was straight out of the pit of hell. Even if Arius was a true believer and he was just mistaken and then his pride got in the way, that idea that Jesus was less than God is straight from Satan. And so I could say that this new group is just a repackaging of that old lie that's re- been recycled and come back out. And that, again, I mean, I know it's, it's one of those things you don't like to hear talk about because, you know, it's like, where where does where do you draw the line? Because you have some people that talk about um, different views, like secondary views, kind of like what Robert talked about, and and you you have these passions and these ideas, and we 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 uh, as brothers and sisters we should even though if we disagree on those secondary issues, you know, we should still be able to come together and talk and and to some degree fellowship and etc. But when they violate those core doctrines, those core doctrines such as Jesus being fully God and fully man, when when that when that gets violated, then we're no longer talking about a Christian group. And, and I think that's safe to say um, with that. And, and, and I believe that's where I think as Christians, we do want to separate ourselves from those groups that do deny those core doctrines of Christianity. That's kind of like, where, where do you draw the line? That's where you draw the line. It's at those core doctrines. Is the Bible the Word of God? Yes, it is. You know, is Jesus fully God, fully man? Yes, he is. The Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, those are both all fully God, yet of one of essence. You know, those are core doctrines, core beliefs that upon getting violated, you, you know, violating those doctrines, you are no longer then a part of orthodoxy Christianity, which is kind of like what Robert was talking about. You've now moved into a sect of Christianity or a cult of Christianity where you're claiming to be Christianity, and but you're actually not.
good stuff. So now maybe we can go into the specific teachings about Jesus that Nicaea gave us. Now, if anyone out there is watching, um, if it doesn't blow up your phone too much, maybe you're listening on your phone and can't pull out the app without uh, making us accidentally shut up. But uh, any Googlers out there, feel free to Google the Nicene Creed itself. And um, it's not in front of me word for word, but what it basically says is God is, uh, Jesus is fully God and fully man, which sounds like a contradiction, but the church was fully convinced, based merely on the text, not on personal preference or the, the desire to be edgy. They came, sincerely came to the conclusion that this man was somehow fully both. Mm-hmm. And it, came, it birthed a whole new term in theology called the hypostatic union. And that's more than just gobbledygook. That actually means that somehow this one person, we, we call him Jesus, History basically called him Josh. That's what Jesus was like to their ears back then. It was a common name. And yet this one individual was fully human in every way and fully divine in every way. Both both of those natures, those kinds of essences, mashed into one person without compromising either nature at once. And you can, and not to, not to pause you, but um, if you look at the scriptures, like we're not making this up, I mean... Whenever Jesus, you know, he slept, whenever, if you imagine this, you know, there's the part in Scripture where Jesus is asleep in the boat. You know, he's literally asleep. His body needed sleep. You know, there's the instance at the woman at the well, you know, whenever the disciples go to get food and and he comes back or they come back after he talks to her and and they're like, Where'd you get your food from? Your here's here's food, and he's like, I'm not hungry. Basically, he's like, I have food that sustains me, you know, beyond what you understand. And that wasn't to say that he wasn't hungry, that he didn't eat, but there was something about that nourishment that he had that altercation with that woman that nourished him in a, in a way that we can't understand. But he still had like his physical body whenever he was tortured and crucified and put up on the cross. It was a literal physical body that literally died and then literally rose again. Like his body body started breathing again, started working again. And it says like in the the point of after the resurrection that Jesus actually, you know, requests for food and eats it in front of the disciples to, to prove to them that he's not a spirit. But he actually, after the resurrection ate something physical and i mean and of course we all go oh yeah that makes sense i mean but at the same time there was an idea and the idea still to this day that exists of him of it being a uh a ghostly resurrection not a bodily resurrection but it was a physical body resurrection where he literally ate something now was it beyond the um, what we knew because he, he was able to appear and disappear and things like that. But it, still, it was a physical body. Emphasis added, physical body. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so they came to this conclusion that... Thank you, Robert. You're welcome. The Christian God <laughs> is pretty much like a Rubik's Cube on steroids. I mean, he grew up, he experienced everything that we set, we have and. It can be cliche to say that flippantly, but I mean, just meditate on the fact that Jesus went through puberty. Jesus learned how to walk. Jesus learned how to talk. Um, Jesus um, may have had a little girl have a crush on him as they were growing. I mean, any common mundane thing that you would be shocking and scandalous to think that Jesus went through, he went through because he was fully human. And yet at the same time, uh, we've already mentioned the end of the world on this episode uh, there's an uh, there's a scene in the Gospels where he is talking about when the world ends, this is going to come, and this will come, and this will come. And then some, one of his disciples say, well, this is heavy stuff. When is this going to happen? And Jesus says, actually, I have no idea. This was the human Jesus with only a limited amount of knowledge about everything. And then in the next instant, he said, oh, look, a blind man. And he just turns on the man's eyes, and he just goes on his way and eats a cheeseburger. <laughs> and so Minus it's back and the forth. Cheeseburger. <laughs> the ancient version of cheeseburger, which was one olive, like, for the whole day. Oh. Uh, but, uh. Although I do like olives, just oh, yeah. by itself. No, not, in the, not, not, not out in the ancient Middle East where there was little more than that. 
at all mm. ever, which was rough. But uh, but you have this these two natures bouncing back and forth without being two separate people. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the, the many different aspects of Jesus they debated at this thing. First, of course, Arius, is he right? They decided, no, he's not. And therefore, Jesus must be purely divine. Well, since he's purely divine, was he fully human? It says he was. Luke says he had to learn and grow and become uh, good with his hands, become good, good at language, just like a, any baby would. And the the mysterious instances we've already covered where Jesus' life doesn't seem to make sense. It's kind of like a toilet flush that can't decide whether it's on the left side or the right side of things. <laughs> you don't know what I mean. I know what I mean okay. for about five minutes, and then I'll forget. But okay. <laughs> I'm like, what? Wait, exactly. What? <laughs> that's what that's what it feels like to be an ancient Christian thinking about Jesus. Like, what? But uh, Wow. <laughs> well, look out for that lightning bolt. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, <laughs> and so you have, <laughs> so you have this mis- mysterious person uh, juggling both natures in a way that we could never understand. But there is definite good to the fact that he is both. And it's one thing to give the history of the council. Um, the takeaway of the council is that Jesus was both. Uh, chances are, if you've investigated Christianity any length of time, you've already heard that conclusion because that is absolute basic Christian orthodoxy nowadays. And so uh, that's, I mean, that's Christianity 101. As soon as you know what, who Jesus is, like as soon as you hear the name, you hear something about his divinity if you go at it from a Christian perspective. But but uh, the, the big, big takeaway, obviously he was divine, but the biggest takeaway for us, those of us who are in the modern world, um, some of you may have heard this since you were able, barely able to walk or talk. Uh, if you grew up in a Christian home, the idea that Jesus is divine is not news to you. It's like learning the sky is blue and being shocked at 30 years old. Nobody does that. But uh, what we can really take away is we have this God who not only juggles two natures, it's not just philosophical mumbo-jumbo. If he is alive, if he's in this room as we're recording, if he's in the room with you as you're listening, wouldn't you want to know exactly who he is? I mean, wouldn't you want to know if the person you've been married, not just an illustration, if the person you've been married to for 10, 15, 20 years was a double agent, would you like to know that? Would you like to stay in the dark? If if Jesus is more than just another founder walking in the dust and his bones crying out through the things he said, but nothing more, would you want to know? If he was much more than that, would you want to know? And I mean, years ago, I said, yes, I would definitely like to know that. And that's the journey that led me here to this podcast is I'm now an ordained Christian minister, um, you know, with the audacity in the modern world. We have vehicles and space travel, and I have the audacity to say that there's a supernatural realm and somebody crossed over from it to us and shocked a whole room full of people and they changed the world. And this idea that this God can have both natures on one hand. Um, you've got the human hand. Jesus, as a human, knows exactly what it's like to be you. Even uh, even though he had no sin, Scripture says that, he knows exactly what it is like to be limited. He knows exactly what it's like to have to walk, to pump two legs to get from one end of a town to the other instead of being everywhere at once. He knows exactly what it is like to be thirsty and hungry and frightened. I mean, absolutely terrified. If you know what I'm talking about, Jesus in Gethsemane is the absolute pits. Um, You have someone who's experienced um, literal anger because they lost someone they loved. I mean, he, he bawled his eyes out in fury because he went to a friend's funeral. And this is the Lord of life, and yet he let the reality of death sink in for himself before he he performed a miracle there and so this is not a faith and i'm talking about the modern christian life if you just stick to the basic teachings don't follow some bizarre um left for right field um human tradition but for those churches that grow up and they try to pound perfection into their people you've got to do this you've got to avoid those people you have got to stay stay away from these kinds of movies you've got to stay away from these kinds of activities you've got to focus on these thoughts and these words and these actions and be this person or else and don't dance and if you do for all the love of god do not shake your hips yes 
only your head because that's where the glory of God's thoughts are. I, I'm, I'm just making that up. But <laughs> that, if I ever heard a t- church say that, I, I don't know what I'd do. But anyway. Aren't there several churches that teach you can actually fall from salvation? Yes. They do teach. Like yes. Christian churches. Mm-hmm. Teach yeah. yeah. If you're saved, you can become unsaved. Yes. If you do something yes. bad enough yes. or whatever. Exactly. Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that goes into, not to be confused with, Arianism, but there's goodness. Do you want to do you want to tackle that, Robert? Um, what aspect are you tracking with? That way, I don't go on some. Well, tangent I was thinking of <laughs> run away from it's, it's free will Arminianism. Yep, and where that comes from is in a nutshell. Without you know making this episode any more complex than it's already been. <laughs> <laughs> Philosophical <laughs> Aristotelianism, blah 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 blah. blah. But. Uh, so basically what that idea is, and there are many denominations, like Brian just said, uh, that actually teach this to their people on a daily basis. This is their lives. Now, I will, I will say that as a point of clarification, this is, this is where you kind of get into that, like, because you have the, 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 the core doctrines of Christianity, um, and then you have, I guess, you the the free will versus God's will debate, and while that is a very important debate, and and I'm and every single believer has to come to conclusion on that, we do respect those people who have the Armenian views. I mean, you know, I I. I, I might disagree with them regarding salvation, but I don't like it's a secondary issue in the sense that we can still talk about it and, 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 and agree to disagree and still love and worship God. And I think that's an important distinction here. We wouldn't we wouldn't sever our ties with these people as long as, you know, yes, we might disagree on whether or not we can lose salvation, but at the end of the day, who is Jesus? Oh, absolutely. And <clears throat> thank you for catching me if that's what it sounded like I was headed. Because, uh, you know, I, I believe that as long as we stick to Christ, all these opinions are, as long as our faith is in legitimately in him, all these opinions have a, have a room to be heard. But uh, where, where I think the real damage is isn't in the theology of the Arminianism that I'm talking about, but some of the very human effects that that theology has had sometimes had in church lives um, what the theology teaches that we're talking about is it, uh, the idea that you can gain salvation through Jesus but then you can lose salvation at any time if you commit some sin that you know God himself deems um, unworthy of you considering yourself a Christian any longer and what and these are genuine Christians. These are brothers and sisters we will be with in heaven who believe it, and they have every right to believe it if it's genuinely, you know, founded in their their consideration of Scripture. But what this has but done to so many church cultures, and I'm talking about congregations, um, teaching the implications of this idea, is you have churches lording the idea over them that if it's kind of like the ultimate hover parent, helicopter parent, if you. Do not, uh, ever, if you ever stray from this certain concept, this westernized American, maybe even just southern concept of what a Christian is and does, and you stray from it in any way, you will lose your salvation. Um, you are going to suffer and go to hell. People have grown up with an idea that heaven and hell are point systems, which, I mean, it's only natural that they would get the idea that church uses this for power. It sounds like something the church would do if they wanted power. And it's turned into a heaven-hell point system. And so if you gain enough points or lose points, you're going to hell. You know, the idea is people actually think the church believes you'll go to hell for certain actions. Um, you're going to hell because you went to that movie. Uh, you're going to hell because you chew uh, chew tobacco. I mean, you know. Strength, smoke, or chew and hang out with people who do. Amen. And what it does is it makes, especially teenagers, when they grow up in this environment with parents who are bought to that particular uh, brand of human thinking about the gospel, they get the false idea of what the gospel actually is. And they end up hating Christianity, but they actually end up hating a straw man version of Christianity rather than the actual faith. And so they will spend their lives 
with uh, without the opportunity to hear the real faith because they're running so hard from their particular version of it. And so it kind of it suffocates believers. I mean, I'm a church minister, and I would have felt very suffocated in some of these cultures. It, uh, it lords fear over the congregation. It, it actually incites hatred and division, which we are criticized for left and right, and some of it is warranted because of this idea. It's us versus them. And I would even say that there are instances where, you know, this is propagated from the pastor or, you know, leadership in that particular church, like— you know, it's like if you do the thing, if you do these things that I think you should do, then you're good. But if you don't do these things that I think you should do, then you're on the list of going to hell. It's just a pure form of manipulation. It is. Yeah. I mean, yeah, pure manipulation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's not grace through faith in Christ. It's. Well, it's grace, grace through faith in Christ. But now you, you, he's got a a gun pointed to your head, yeah. and if you do not stay away from these things, um, then you're going, you're going to hell. And the problem is, if 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 that's the case, because Jesus made the point of if you even think it. Like, you know, going back to the, the woman and the man illustration of adultery, when Jesus says, if you looked at a woman and you lusted it in her, your heart, but you, even, you never actually did it, but in your heart you did it, you've committed adultery. So it's like for these people, for these pastors that are like holding this uh, invisible gun over their congregation, it's like you're missing the point because the point is, if you even think about these things, you are worthy of hell. The reality of it is, every single human being, except for Jesus, every single human being deserves hell. Period. Every pastor, every uh, deacon, every uh, elder, you know, going into some of the other denominations, what have you, every single person deserves hell hell but god made a way for us to not be there to not go there and you know and that's the thing is like if you accept that if you accept christ as your savior then you do not suffer the wrath of god anymore you are you know you have been redeemed you have been removed from that you literally will not see that judgment unless you you know you fall under these this group of people who think well if you don't if you do xyz then you're you're cast out and and it's just it's a way of it's it's a way of fighting the culture you know cuz a lot of times it, uh you know some of these groups will move into the cult it'll kind of like become this cultural norm like about abstinence from alcohol and and i and i would say that there are merits to it but it doesn't mean that you lose your salvation like if you go out and you drink a beer you know what hey you drunk a beer okay don't whoop de do now now does the scripture say do not get drunk well yeah it says but why does it say to not get drunk it doesn't say because you'll lose your salvation it says because you're a sinner and what do you do when you're drunk you do dumb things I mean, most of the alcohol verses are in Proverbs, and the whole direction of that book is, my son, these things are very bad ideas. Love your father. Go out into the world. And so, it's it, yeah, there's no salvation tied to that. Right. I mean, and, it, and it's like, and, and now can you, can you pull apart, like, basic principles of, hey, do not get drunk? Yeah, because, why? Because, you know, again, like I said, you know, you don't want to do stupid things, and, and alcohol... Else. Yeah, I mean, how how yeah, how many times have you seen people get drunk and get behind a car and it destroys somebody else's life, not even their own life, but it destroys other people's lives, you know? And so in that way, it's practical. Yeah, don't get drunk, but it doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation. But there's so many of these groups out there that teach like if you don't do X Y Z and come to church and tithe, because you got to make sure you tithe, because if you don't tithe then you're going to hell. You know, it's all it's all these it's all these pharisaical acts 
that create and we are way off topic like completely but at the same time i think it's okay it's it's important though because i guess i hadn't considered like i knew there were denominations out there that taught that Mm -hmm. but i guess i didn't truly contemplate like the implication of that like when you become a christian that's supposed to be a very freeing Mm -hmm. very like restorative like your your soul is being restored essentially mm-hmm. and to go through i about lost it um to go through and think that you know oh I, I've, I've obtained this but at any moment if i make a mistake if i'm not perfectly following this path that could be taken away from me mm-hmm. like that would be the opposite of that kind of freeing liberating restorative gift like and that turns into this just oh you, you know just oh my gosh you know and and the re- you never you, you never live up to that yeah you never live up to that but not only that but then whenever tragedy happens yeah i mean first of all you, you know you're like kind of like what you're saying you're striving 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 to do this to do it to do to do to do to remain true to this but then tragedy strikes or you get in an accident and you're crippled and you require you know every day to take some kind of substance because you are in terrible pain without it um you know and and because the the preacher has preached against these things it's like well i'm i'm consuming this because i you know this this drug this legal drug because i need it because otherwise i have agony in my leg or what have you you know and then well you've fallen from grace you're you, and then it just it makes the heart the hit the hitting despair. yeah it creates this despair that you cannot get over you're, you're forever trapped in this cultural christianity and and you don't even realize that jesus paid it all and being in that flux of not knowing yeah like oh i've lost track of like what what you were saying robert that point system just like oh i've lost track of my points and, and, and when i wake up today am i saved or am i not am I- or what happens if what happens if you were in the good completely and totally and then you get in a car accident and you have amnesia and you remember nothing oh wow that's a good one you know i mean there you go yeah now and and in my thinking i go well jesus is here he's solid he's your rock even if you don't remember even if you develop alzheimer's disease and you can't remember god's still there he's still holding you he's still holding your father your mother your sister your brother he's still there and i feel like in some ways if you get caught up in that um that uh wishy-washy faith you lose track of that and you lose track of who god is and you lose track of what christianity is truly about because it's about the fact that none of us none of us can do right and and, you know and here's the thing whenever jesus died on the cross two thousand plus roughly years ago all of our sins hadn't happened yet so whenever we came to faith, we came to faith in the you know in the, in the here and the now, but all of our actions in the Jesus's time were future events. So like this future event where you something happens and you sin, guess what? Jesus is still Jesus. He's not changed. He's still there. He still loves you. He still cares about you. You know, and that's what, you know, coming to that, you know, that profession of faith, you know, that that's part of that profession of faith Mm -hmm. is you accept that somehow that we don't understand somehow Jesus dying 2000 years ago counted for for me in Mm -hmm. the present and counts for anything I might do Mm -hmm. in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's what gets a lot of people is they're like, well, he died you know millennia ago mm-hmm. how does that affect me right and so that, and that's part of that faith is right what he did absorbing the sin of the world past present and future that it covers all of us mm-hmm. 
and I think that really catches a lot of people. Yeah, they get hung up on that. Yeah, and and I think and that's part of the issue whenever you have um, brothers and sisters out there that teach that you can lose your salvation. It's like that spits directly. It it, it literally of what he did. Right. You know, yeah. and that that's going directly against the gospel. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, now can you be uh, a teenager who, you know, gets dunked in the baptism and 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 things of that nature, and and not truly be a true believer, and then later on in life you 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 have that aha moment, and and then you know you profess Christ and all those things. Yes, that can happen. I've even I've had people I've known people who made a commitment at an early age, and then they walk away from the faith for a time. But then God brings them back through various circumstances, various issues, what have you, and and they would say that their previous, you know, commitment whenever they were a child or whatever was genuine, and they truly meant it. And I think, honestly, that's God bringing someone who truly was a believer back to them. Because that's, I think, at the end of the day, you're talking about whether or not someone can lose their salvation. I feel like, at the end of the day, if you're truly saved, you will come. There will be a part of you. There will be a longing within you that you can't even answer, that you can't feel that there's something like there, like you know, there's something that you should be doing, and you and even if you don't know what it is, it's out there and it's it's like it's testifying to you that this is what you ought to do. You should be doing this. You should not be doing this. You know what have you? And I feel like when you answer that call, it's proof of your salvation. That's good stuff and. You know, kind of wrapping this around to the reason this was even brought up, uh, you know, in a Council of Nicaea episode, which is very, very necessary because, I mean, it's important for us all to realize that, you know, our thoughts have a direct effect on the life of the church and on each life out there listening. And so, I mean, just running off of these ideas, you have these the two views. The good news is that God will carry you. You don't even have to have the weight on your legs when things get too heavy. That's phenomenal news for anyone carrying the burden of their own imperfections. But when certain churches, certain ideas teach them that salvation is like a stone, you can pick it up, stub your toe two steps later and drop it, pick it up, carry it a little bit farther and drop it. I mean, no wonder people eventually get fed up, put it down and walk away. And they never really understand that good news. Now, the reason I brought that up to begin with, and this has been a phenomenal discussion in and of itself, is the Council of Nicaea, Jesus fully human. Mm -hmm. That's what I brought up to begin with. And when these situations come up, these people are in the world. There might be someone, I'm praying that someone, when this episode's released, someone who has been in that situation hears this by some avenue, then... Uh, you know, the the fact that Jesus is fully human tells us that he gets it when we are being imperfect. Jesus himself would strongly be against some of the some of the ideas that get perpetuated in certain Christian circles because it takes the glory off of him as the great mediator. He is Hebrews says plainly since he was human, he knows what it's like. You can be human in the Christian faith, believe it or not. You do if your view of the Christian faith is that you have to be perfect in order to please God and you don't realize that it's impossible to please him fully like that that's why Jesus even came into the picture then you have got to grasp that being fully human Jesus understands he will not rebuke you when you come to him with something messed up that comes your way and he, or if you've done things that you know that you have that our culture would deem is unre- irrevocable. Like if you've had an abortion, you know, God didn't want you to do that. But if, if you did do those things, there is healing and there is salvation for you. Yeah. I mean, 
no one is irredeemable with the no. exception of Satan. No. But that's no. he's not human and he's not part of the human race. Oh, yeah, cuz I would never uh throw out anyone's name. Um he is anonymous enough. No one knows no one listening to this knows what church I pastor. So I'll go ahead and say there is a member here who is now seated on the front pew with his wife every Sunday. And before he came to faith, he was in prison from the 80s until last year because they broke into a house, tied up a girl, and raped her, him and a buddy. And he deeply regrets what he did. And he gets that Jesus has covered it all. And he has made amends. And he is a new man. And he is part of our church. And he is thriving. And he's joined. And he's ready. I mean, that could be you out there, no matter where you've been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and and... If God can redeem those stories, then he can redeem anything and everything that you've done. And and there there's true healing. I mean I'm just, I'm just want to emphasize the fact that there there's nothing that you can do or not do that can get you or keep you or whatever except for Jesus. That's it. You can't outsend the cross. You cannot outsend the cross. No. I love that uh, saying, that phrase. Not that, not that you should strive right. to or <laughs> anything. Challenge but, accepted. Challenge accepted <laughs> yeah, no, there, yeah, no, none saying. of that. None of that. We're not saying that. But we're saying, you know, in, in that God, God has his hand out, and he wants you to come to him, and he wants you in all your imperfections and all your junk to come to him. That's, that's the reality of it. That's the truth of it. And the sooner you come to the terms with that, the sooner you can be liberated from the guilt and the shame and maybe even the, the uh, self-righteous religious life that you've pre- thought you had and pretended that you had, but you really didn't. And that's the great hope of the Nicene Creed. It's so much more than just words. We have a fully human, fully divine God. He is not someone above, up above judging from the heights beyond the highest Olympus. This is a God. Thanks to the, to the Nicene Creed, we chisel down that this is what Scripture says about him. And because of those two natures, we have someone strong enough to compete, uh, so strong enough to cover and forgive and to carry, low enough to relate and to be to bend just as low as we are when we need someone who relates to us the most. And so so much more than just words. This is this is hope. This is the life of the church. It's the Nicene Creed. Well thank you, Zach and Robert. Um I think uh I think we'll wrap it up there. Um what do we have coming up on the next one? We're gonna tag a little bit more than that Nicene Creed. Not so much it's a little bit, little bit of a different flavor. Kind of talk about like some of the, like, did Constantine truly commit to the faith, or was he just uh, seeing the the times that he was in and seeing the change and went with it, or what? So just some, just some food for thought. Okay. And uh, yeah, uh, as I said at the beginning of the episode, definitely check us out on our Facebook page, Achieving Christian Thought Podcast. Um, definitely uh, check us out on our website at uh, theactpod.com. And uh, yeah, had a lot of fun tonight, uh, guys. And uh, to all you listeners out there, we'll uh, see you on the next episode. See you, see you guys.